0: Well, hello there, and thanks for tuning in to HC Conversations, a podcast where we have discussions around faith, life, politics, and more, how to navigate those things as a follower of Jesus. You'll also find audio from weekly messages at Hope Community. Thanks for joining us for today's podcast. Let's jump in. Welcome back to the HC Conversations podcast. We're really honored that you would join us and spend a little bit of time with us. Um, We're going to... I guess do part two of a conversation today that we touched on a few weeks ago. Uh, and that's the idea of racism, uh, racism in America, uh, the church's response. And honestly, I would have preferred that we didn't have to do a conversation mm-hmm. like this again. Um, but once again, uh, given recent events, uh, this is important for us to talk about. Right. Uh, there has been um, another black man killed in our country. Um, he was killed at the hands of the police. Uh, there is currently, as we talk about this, uh, rioting and protesting that have been going on. Um, it brings a lot of things to light that are important to talk about um, for us as individuals, but also if you would call yourself a follower of Jesus, this is a conversation we have to have. Mm-hmm. Um, and the kind of the first um, episode we did on racism, we talked more about um, individuals and just the, uh, the idea of racism and our response to that. We're going to spend time today talking about this idea of systemic racism.
1: Yeah, the, the fact that it's not just personal, it's in our systems, it's in our government, that the, there are things working actively against minorities, against people of color. Um, and as followers of Jesus, it's our job and as white followers of Jesus, especially, it's our job to, and our duty to speak out against those things and to to take action to see something done to, to put an end to these injustices that that just continue to perpetuate a system um, against people.
0: Yeah, and I know the idea of systemic racism, like it makes some people uncomfortable. Um, it, it makes let's I mean the people that makes it uncomfortable are white people. Mm-hmm. Um, And specifically talking from a Christian perspective, uh, white evangelicals in the U.S. tend to really not like this idea. Um, And I've experienced this and having conversations with people or hearing people talk about this topic or this issue, uh, the idea of racism. And the the instant response is, well, I'm not racist. I'm not racist as an individual. I don't have... I don't have personal feelings within me that discriminates against a person because of the color of their skin. Mm-hmm. I'm not racist. And it's it's completely possible to not be a racist as an individual, but to still be a part of a system that is set up against certain uh, people. It, right, it, it, it to ha- benefit from that system. Right, it happens, it's not, most of the time, it's not even a conscious decision that we're making. Mm-hmm. We are just benefiting from something that's coming at someone else's expense. And so we want to talk about that idea today. Um, and here's, I guess, along with that idea where we'll, we'll start a little bit, uh, and this is where it plays out, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, I was having a conversation with someone the other day, and I've heard this sentiment expressed a lot, um, not just now, but over the past several years, basically, mm-hmm. of, I hate the Black Lives Matter movement. Like I think it's just so dumb. I think it's just it's just it's just a stupid thing. And um, a, a couple of things. Like first of all, on any issue, who are any of us to decide what's important to another human being? Right. Right. Like if you think something's important, it's not. I don't have the right to say no. That's stupid, and that shouldn't matter to you. Um, but beyond that, I think we miss the heartbeat of it. Because, like, the instant response of so many people to Black Lives Matter was no, all lives matter, all lives matter. Um, but that's Black Lives Matter, is, is, it's not about, and it is not now, nor has it ever been, saying that other lives don't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to share uh, a social media post. Um, well, I'm not going to share it because I can't actually share a social media post like on a podcast. In the you sense, can read it. In the sense that you would share a social media <laughs> so post. So Phil's going to read it for I'm, us. <laughs> I'm going to read this post um, that, that came from what? what um, there we go. Sorry, I couldn't get my photos to work on my phone. Uh, I took a screenshot of this, and this is from um, Dr. Bernice King. And she said that, she says, All lives matter is an ideal, but black lives matter is an organization and activism committed to ensuring that black lives become part of the all. Absolutely. Yeah. All eyes matter. Yeah. All lives matter. But black lives matter is a movement to to try to make sure they're a part of the all. And then mm-hmm. someone from a Christian perspective wrote this. And I like this talking about um, the parable of the lost sheep. It says in Luke 15, 100 sheep go uh, are there. One goes missing. Jesus leaves the 99 and goes after the one. And then they kind of put this like assumption in there of like the 99 they're left behind are like, but but what about us? Don't we matter? We're the other 99. And here's kind of the the punchline, I guess, if you will. Of course, the other 99 matter, but they're not the ones that are in danger. The one is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's really where some of this, this comes from, this idea of um, systemic racism. There is a group of people who have been disadvantaged in our country, mm-hmm. who have been disadvantaged for hundreds of years, and that didn't end with the abolition of slavery. Mm-hmm. That didn't end with... Um, the desegregation of society in Brown versus Board of Education that didn't end with the right to vote. It, it's gotten better, but it still exists. Right. And so we want to, I guess talk about that for a little bit. Understanding that this is also going to make, well most of our, list, not maybe not most of our listeners, but some of our listeners a little uncomfortable mm-hmm. um, because most, if not all, of our listeners, are, uh, are white people mm-hmm. who are probably living somewhere in rural America. Uh, and this seems like an issue that's very far It's away distant. From us. It's, it's
1: removed from us. It's not something that we really have to worry about because it's, it's over there. It's in Minneapolis. It's in Columbus. It's in these other cities. And so, you know, it's not really my problem. It, that's, that's what I've heard. Yeah. And uh, it, it actually is our problem because as white Americans, we have benefited from these systems. We have privilege whether we want to admit it or not you say white privilege you can't and, say that Paul and you you make people mad when you start talking about white privilege and trying to to admit that but also like I guess get rid of some of that like yeah we've benefited and that's not right just because of the color of our skin and so we're gonna spend some time unpacking systemic racism uh, mostly in the 20th century we're not going to go back um too far uh, yeah in the 19th really, century
0: uh, really a lot of this is going to focus mostly on even um, post segregation mm-hmm. right because th- there's there's almost a thought and I've heard this a lot in um, from different people in different uh, circles and especially look white evangelical Christians of like well I don't understand like racism doesn't exist anymore segregation isn't a thing anymore and 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 that stuff doesn't exist so you just by golly, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and and that Mm -hmm. kind of thinking. Um, And so we really want to focus on, okay, well, even recent history, what's there?
1: Right. So, Phil, I guess I'll let you uh, begin. I mean, you you wrote down a lot of notes.
0: I did. Okay. So before we jump in. As always, we are not experts, and we don't pretend to be. And everything we're going to share with you has come from other places. And Mm -hmm. so I really encourage you to look into this for yourself. Um, Check out our – they're not really show notes. They're episode –
1: Episode notes in a document attached to the episode. Yes. On the webpage. If you're listening to this
0: (laughs) in iTunes or Spotify, you'll have to go to the website for the podcast page. Please go there. And you'll find links to all of these resources and listen mm-hmm. to this. Um, some of it comes from a podcast or kind of several episodes of a different podcast. That specifically, um, shout out to the Holy Post podcast, episode 267. And they go into a lot more detail. We're going to share some stuff from that. We're, um, Paul's going to share some things from some different articles and some stats. So let's go back a little ways. Because when we talk about systemic racism, it is systems and structures that are benefiting one group of people at the expense of another. Um, and, and these things are underlying, they're under the surface, and we may not even know they're happening. Mm-hmm. Some of these things have, they're, they're not happening anymore. Like certain laws and things right. have been uh, taken off the books, new laws have been added, but the effects are still there. Right? right? It's like when you're building a house and you've got, you're laying the foundation Um, it doesn't matter what you build on top of that, like the foundation's still there. So some of the foundations for systemic racism were laid a long time ago. And even though that's not currently happening, the effects still are. So one of the big issues um, with systemic racism, maybe you've heard a little bit about this, revolves around housing um, and issues of housing. So that's where I want to start. 1935. Um, so this is obviously, this is, you know, post slavery and, and this is during the time of separate, but equal, um, which really wasn't, you know, equal at all, but, uh, the FHA, the federal housing administration in their underwriting manual in 1935 said that incompatible racial groups should not be permitted to live in the same communities. All right. This, this led to the practice of what's known as redlining, um, in which the, the FHA when they're underwriting loans would look into communities that were safe enough for them to underwrite loans in, in which communities were not safe enough for them to underwrite loans in. If you've ever gotten a home mortgage, you understand underwriting and all that. Someone's got to back the loans and blah, 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 Mm blah. The FHA is a big loan backer. and so The
1: Federal Housing Authority.
0: Federal Housing Authority. What did I say?
1: FHA, just like oh okay, telling people what it is if they don't know <laughs> what FHA housing is.
0: Authority, yes. And if you've ever tried to get an FHA loan, it's not that fun. <laughs> There's lots of qualifications. But anyway, in 1935, that was the they had this this policy. It said incompatible racial groups should not be permitted to live in the same communities, and they would only underwrite loans in communities that they thought were safe. And other ones were considered too risky. We won't, we won't write loans there because it's not a, it's not a safe investment. Mm -hmm. Um, and guess which communities were always deemed too risky to have a mortgage. It was the black communities. And so they couldn't get, um, government underwritten loans in order to, you know, purchase a house and build a life and do those kind of things. Uh, and they also couldn't move to the neighborhoods that were not as, considered as risky. They couldn't move to the white neighborhoods. Um, Up until 1950, the National Realtor's Code prohibited selling homes in white neighborhoods to non-whites. If they would sell a home in a white neighborhood to someone that was not a white person, they would lose their realtor's license. Mm -hmm. And so up until 1950, it was not even possible by the Realtors Association. If you you were a person of color and you wanted to get out of your neighborhood, if you wanted to be able to uh, live somewhere that you could get an FHA loan, if you wanted to move out to the suburbs, which we'll talk about in a moment, you couldn't do it.
1: Right, you couldn't. And I mean, while we were getting ready for this, before uh, we did a little bit of research, I was just wondering, like, in our own community, why aren't there more African Americans. Why is our community like 95% white? And this answers that question. It's because they were, you know, because of federal guidelines kept from moving into the smaller communities, into rural America.
0: And even when that wasn't a part of the National Realtors Code then, um, it was one of those unwritten codes. Right. Okay, you, you, you don't, this isn't technically on our books now, but for a long time, that's still how people operated. And uh, I know, yeah, you say in our community, there's a lot of our community, as I'm thinking about this, that was built in the 1950s yeah. and 60s. I know the particular little subdivision, or what we call them, allotments around mm-hmm. here uh, that I live in. The majority of the houses were built in the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. I believe the house I live in was built in 1960. The house I grew up in, in, the same allotment, was built in like 1956. And right, that's when we there is a huge housing boom happening. Um, but that was pretty much only available for white Americans. We have mm-hmm. a lot of new housing developments happening after World War II, right? The, the baby boomer generation, it's this time when uh, America is exploding onto the scene and the economy is thriving and, and you know people have returned from the war and they're having families and they're building houses and everybody's moving out to the suburbs, mm-hmm. right? There's that little picture of the perfect little American family with the white picket fence and however many kids and it's driving the nice new um, uh, car, uh, you know, I don't know.
1: With the happy little Music in the, the background. Happy, it's like leave, you see in like old movies. It's leave it to Beaver, right? Yeah.
0: Like that's 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 what it is. Um, but with a lot of those housing developments, the, the suburbs are being developed. Again, uh, there were stipulations in many of those housing developments that said uh, people could not purchase homes or have homes built or be a part of this housing development who were not white. Mm-hmm. And, and so you had this going on for for all these years when America's exploding, the suburbs, an entire class of people, like the whole middle class is kind of developing. Um, that was only for white Americans. Right. And at the
1: same time, you had the, the development of the highway system in the United States. Yeah. And uh, that leads us on to our next thing.
0: Yeah. So the highways are being developed and, and infrastructure is being developed. And the FHA, again, uh, suggests that the new highways that are being built would be built in a way that separates the white neighborhoods from the black neighborhoods. And you can actually see this today. If you travel through highways and interstates, and you look on like one side of on uh, of the interstate, it's like okay, well, those are the suburbs, and that's like that's where all the white people live. And then on the other side of the interstate, it's like well, that's maybe the inner city, and that's where uh, the black people live. And mm-hmm. you were actually telling me about something pretty cool happening here locally.
1: What's yeah, going up in about? up in Akron, they are getting rid of uh, I think it's in, uh, the interstate, so interstate interstate, so it's inside the city, um, fifty nine, I think it is. And uh, because it's not really getting used anymore. So they're tearing it down and la- it's either last summer or the summer before um, for the first time. And since that highway had been built, uh, families from both neighborhoods got together and came together in the center of the highway and had set up like a little park um, to bring unity to these, this neighborhood that had been divided by this highway for so long. Uh, and it's just a beautiful picture of reunification and the city recognizing the destruction that the highway had caused and getting rid of it to reunite those neighborhoods. Yeah.
0: And so you have, here we're getting, again, this picture of this is what systemic racism looks like. It's you aren't allowed to get loans. We're going to make a whole bunch of loopholes. And not and now there's actual physical barriers in between the neighborhoods. You know, there's a highway run into the neighborhood. So we have white people moving to the suburbs. But um, most of the black people are left in inner cities. Um, they can't move to white neighborhoods because it's not allowed. And also, uh, they can't get loans to build a house or have a home in the black neighborhoods because no one's going to underwrite a loan for them, which leads to the, okay, the the disparity in wealth. Um, so the average African-American family only has 60% of the income of a white family, but the average African-American family only has 10% of the net wealth of the average white family. And one of the biggest reasons for that is because most of people's wealth is tied up in their houses, in their home equity, in their property. Um, And most African-American families missed out on that. When you think about the post- uh, World War II housing boom um, that that did so much for this country and to produce well produce wealth for so many people. Uh, I know it was generations ago, but it produced wealth for us mm-hmm. for our families. Um, we're feeling the. The benefits from that and we don't realize it most african-american families missed out on that housing boom which caused them to miss out on the ability to have a retirement the ability to afford college the ability to pass wealth on to the next generation Mm -hmm. and that generation to the next generation right and it it leads to
1: generational poverty and again systems that are stacked against these people uh that you know those laws might not be around anymore but the effects are still being felt today
0: right and so that's where we talk about okay that's it's not a popular phrase, but it's white privilege Mm -hmm. or it is systemic racism. I didn't intentionally, I never made the decision to discriminate against a group of people. I didn't make the decision to say, uh, you have to live over there. You can't do these things. But because of uh, the color of my skin, and for generations, my ancestors, we were able to live in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. We were able to get loans for houses, um, and I, don't, you know, I don't come from a family that's like, well, we're super wealthy or we have a lot, but we were, you know, we were comfortable. We could pay the bills. There was food on the table, and we had a house in the suburbs that we lived in. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are things that I have. Uh, the advantage of having that. I don't ever think about it. I never think, wow, I'm so privileged because I grew up in a house in the suburbs. Right. Um, and, and that's what it is. It's that underlying, under the surface stuff. Mm-hmm. So, that leads to the next thing right? Moving out to the suburbs, wealth for white families is increasing. Uh, well, that leads to employment then because once the suburbs get started, uh, factories start moving to the suburbs too, because it's really expensive to run and operate and build a factory in the inner city. Um, so factories move out to the suburbs where there's all this land, they can build them on one story. Uh, and because the factories are in the suburbs, the work is in the suburbs, uh, black people who lived in the inner cities were not able to go to those jobs because right. they, their
1: employers left their and employers left, left them to jobless move, yeah, to
0: move to the suburbs. They don't have modes of transportation to get to the suburbs. They can't buy houses and live in the suburbs. And so now the jobs aren't there. And here's a statistic on that. So in 1970, so this is, you know, a couple decades after the suburbs are booming and factories are moving out there. 1970 though, 70% um, of blacks in America had blue collar jobs by 1987, so 17 years later, that number was down to 28%, from 70% to 28%. And the biggest reason for that is the the relocation of where the factories were. Mm-hmm. Um, they moved to the suburbs.
1: Right. And whenever there is poverty, there's also a rise in crime, there's a rise in drug abuse. And it, it's interesting that that the war on drugs and is the next thing that we're going to talk about. But it overlaps with that period when there's just this massive loss of, of, of jobs. Um, you know, a lot of people look at the eighties as that, that was a great generation. We look at the music, look at the culture, look at the art, but it was not great for all people.
0: Exactly. Like, I mean, you think about, I, I happen to like the eighties. I was only around for one year of them, but like, I love eighties music. Not even a year, not even a year. Okay. Seven months. (laughs) All right. Okay. But Hey, whatever. Um, the, like oh, the, the movie, the music, the movies, music, TV. Like I think it's fun uh, or whatever, and we have this nostalgia for the '80s, mm-hmm. but not everybody does. Right, and and that's one of the things. A lot, one of the things I'll hear from um, a lot of you know conservative Christians, white evangelicals, is like that era is held up as like this just shining, wonderful, uh, actually, there you go, shining and wonderful. That was um, a, a phrase that uh, President Reagan used a lot. A shining city on a hill is, yeah. is what America is. And there's that picture, like we think it's so incredible. And it was for a certain group of people. Mm-hmm. But again, as, as we look at the African-American community during that same time that we thought was so amazing, we, we talked about how, okay, well now all the jobs that have left the inner cities and with the loss of jobs comes poverty, it comes hopelessness, it comes crime and comes drugs.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so then you have the, the war on drugs began, which really wasn't a war on drugs is more like a war against Humanity, yeah. war against minorities. Um, the, in 1981, the Department of Defense allo- allocated 31 million to fight drug use. Um, by 1991, that budget went up to one billion dollars. That's a lot. That's a huge increase. span, 31 increase. B-
0: million to one
1: billion. One billion. And
0: that was just the Department of Defense,
1: right? So, uh, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, trying to help people get off. Drugs in that same ten-year span, their budget went from 250 million to 50 million. So they they cut the the budget of trying to get people off drugs and increase the the budget for drug enforcement. Um, so the Department of uh, Drug Education had 14 million budget for drug education went down to three million.
0: All right. So during this ten-year span from 81 to 91, we see. Massive, 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 massive spending in drug enforcement um, and a major reduction in drug treatment and drug education. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking about going from several million dollars to a billion dollars of spending in a 10-year span.
1: Right, just on enforcement.
0: And one of the things that came with enforcement, there's, you can do a lot of uh, research and stuff into the war on drugs, and I think research has pretty conclusively said it hasn't really been successful, right? No, it's pre- we're get pretty, pretty massive failure. Um, but one of the things that came with the war on drugs was in the criminal justice system in this country with that, all of that enforcement was the enforcement of mandatory minimums on certain, um, drug offenses. And, uh, that, uh, was very discriminatory, uh, against the black community. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what the actual minimum sentencing is on some of these things, but I do know that, like, so the mandatory uh, minimums for crack cocaine were way higher than mm-hmm. the mandatory minimum for powder cocaine. Right. Well, as far, in terms of, of race, crack cocaine users are much more likely to be black, where powder cocaine users are much more likely to be white. And so you see things like that playing out. Mm-hmm. Um, and before you start thinking, ah, yeah, it's those 80s and those you know, Reagan Republicans that, that did all of that. Um, no, the, the 90s and the Clinton years weren't so good either. Right. Um, just here, here's a, a number. So during the Clinton administration, public housing funding was cut by $17 billion. So affordable public government housing gets reduced by $17 billion, while the prison budget was increased by $19 billion. Mm-hmm. and so now there's just this system that really started in the 80s and has been continuing on where it says we're just going to throw people in jail mm-hmm. we're, just to, we're just going to imprison people and right. kind of there's going to be some bias towards people of color or yeah. going to end up and
1: again we're going to get into that in just a second but it's led to this society of mass incarceration uh, in our country um, I have Witnessed this not like I haven't been incarcerated, but I've um, So I managed volunteers and there is a a man that applied to be uh, in the volunteer program and um, He uh, had a had a criminal record had some drug charges in his past but had shown clear evidence of Turning his life around and in fact that's why he wanted to go through the volunteer program is to um, to receive education and training um, to make his life better and to try to break that cycle, but my employer had a policy that said because you have these offenses in your past, um, you can't be part of our volunteer program. And this is an employer that at the all of at the bottom of like every statement at the bottom of all the letterhead it says we do not discriminate based on age, race, gender, sexual orientation, or socioeconomic status, um, but they had policies in place that clearly did discriminate against people that had uh, any drug record, uh, which more than likely would mean that they were a black male. Um, so clearly discriminating against people. Right. Um, and you know, he was a guy that, that made some bad decisions mm-hmm. and wanted to turn his life around. But again, a, a system was stacked against him where he couldn't move forward. Yeah, I had to, I was told that he he couldn't be part of it and I had to turn him away
0: because of something that happened in his past. Who knows how long ago? Right. Um, and that that's the thing that came with a lot of the war on drugs and the mass incarceration is. It's okay. Well, now even a one-time drug offense, right? You you get caught with, um, you know, a little bit of marijuana or whatever. I mean, in some states it's legal now, but it's like you you get caught and you get prosecuted. That's on your record. Mm-hmm. So maybe something you did when you were 18, 19, 20 years old, now that affects you the rest of your life. If you got a drug conviction on your record, you're barred from public housing, you're not eligible for food stamps, and you have to check that box on job applications. Right.
1: And a lot of colleges will not give you right. any student loans if you have a drug conviction.
0: And so I can't get a student loan, so I can't get an education. I, I can't get a job, so now I'm, I'm in this cycle mm-hmm. of poverty, of hopelessness. Might as well go back to the drugs, um, and, and this this is something that will make me mad. This might get us a little off topic, but whatever, it's our podcast. Um, is from the same people who will who will say things like, "Well, you know, you just the whole idea of is pick yourself up by your bootstraps, right? Like everyone has an, an opportunity, go out and work. You know, why are you just living off the system? That same group of people will say things like, "Well, we should just." you know, uh, drug, um, enforcement, just put them in jail and we don't need treatment and we don't need these things. And, uh, we don't want to reform the prison system. And it's like, well, it's that system that's getting that half. i got to check this one box on this job application mm-hmm. now. So I can't go and, and earn a living. I can't do these things to get myself out of the situation. Right. So what do you want? Do you want me to get myself out of this situation or do you want to reform the prison system, or what? Or do you want to keep the status quo? Like you, you can't do all of it. Right. I mean, we turn people who have who have maybe been um, a victim of the system, who have been damaged by things set up against them, or even people who have honestly done something they shouldn't have done. And it's a mistake, but we turn them into like the bad guy in every single story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I find that just especially disturbing and and just disgusting for followers of Jesus, because we're supposed to be the people that are like, yeah, we're all broken. Mm-hmm. We're all messed up. We're all in need of grace. We all deserve second, third, fourth, a hundred chances because we blow this thing every single day. But sorry, you have this one thing on your record mm-hmm. and you don't get a second chance, right? You got to work for it. You got to, Earn
1: it. I'm You've like, got to pay back your debt to society. You've got to
0: pay back your debt and it's going to haunt you for the rest of mm-hmm. your life. And I'm because just like, a bad, bad person. I'm like, how, how is that in any way uh, like Christ? How's that in mm-hmm. any way? Like he would do what he would do for us. Hey, sorry, you did that one thing and you know, you know, you can get your life back together, but you got to earn it. Right. Like that's just so unchristian.
1: It is. Um, yeah, that's, that's another topic for another day, yeah. and we are going to tackle that very soon. Uh, yeah, we, yeah, we were the, talking about that earlier. <laughs> the list of
0: things that we're going to be talking about on this podcast keeps growing, and we're like, "Oh man!" <laughs>
1: um,
0: Continuing on with incarceration and numbers and the war on drugs and all these things. So
1: we might think that um, you know our country isn't that bad, but uh, it actually is. Whenever you compare rates to, uh, or incarceration rates uh, in the United States compared to apartheid South Africa. So the incarceration rate uh, per 100,000 black males in South Africa under apartheid, this is 1983, or 1993, was 851. The incarceration rate per 100,000 African American males in the United States in 2001 was 4,848. That is almost a one to five ratio. Um, just staggering numbers of, of you know incarceration rates in the United States. The United States only has five percent of the world's population, but they they now hold twenty five percent of the world's prisoners, which leads leads us to have the, the title of the world's leading jailer. Which you would think that that, that would be some communist country, but no, that is. The land of the free the the home of the brave which perhaps we're not so free anymore um this comes from an article uh and i'm just gonna you know go through some quotes because they say it so much better than i ever could um but the the rate at which we lock up our citizens now surpasses every other country that has ever kept statistics which is just Alarming because again, we think that we've made so much progress that we're such a a free country, but not free for all people Um, And along with that, you know We deprive people that have a drug conviction that have a felony conviction the right to vote that we we take that away Um, Even after they've completed their sentences. They still don't have the right to vote So you couple that with the unprecedented rate of incarceration disenfranchisement laws, fundamentally restructure political power and entrench the politicians who support and benefit from drug war policies. So again, we, we just have these laws that continue to incarcerate people and to leave people that make these policies in power. Um, most of the people that, uh, n- that have a drug offense never face any time in jail, but they lose their right to vote forever. So, today that means 13% of all African American men, or 1.4 million, are disenfranchised in the United States. So, these, these men that haven't even served any prison time no longer have the ability to write or the ability to vote to change their future, to change the direction of, con- of their country, to change you know, policy based on who they vote for um, because of the policies and the systems that are stacked against them. Do you have anything that you want to add no okay just, just all right well, i'm, I'm going to keep on going um, it's interesting because it, it the war on drugs is seen to be the war on you know african americans because they're the drug users but you look at the data uh and this comes from the article african americans do not use drugs more than white people whites and blacks use drugs at almost the exact same rates And since there are five times as many whites as black in the United States, it follows that the overwhelming majority of drug users are white. Nevertheless, African Americans are admitted to state prisons at a rate that is 13.4 times greater than whites, a disparity driven largely by the grossly racial targeting of drug laws. In some states, even those outside the old Confederacy, blacks make up 90% of drug prisoners and are up to 57 times more likely than whites to be incarcerated for drug crimes.
0: Okay, I don't want people to miss that right? Like it doesn't matter the color of your skin, black or white people use drugs at basically the exact same rate. Mm -hmm. And there are more white people in this country. So there should be a lot more white people in prison for drugs. However, that's not the case. No. And while, while whites and blacks use drugs at the same rate, black people are way more likely to be put in prison for it. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah,
1: again, that's that systemic racism. It is. Um, there, there's systems stacked against uh, African Americans, and it you know the war on drugs gives gives police basically um, they they benefit from it because they can sell off assets that are seized during it. They receive federal funding, and so it's that of was, a benefit for communities to prosecute these right. drug. Offenders. Uh, that was
0: one of the big things in the war on drugs. That the, like, There was incentivization. If that, is that a word? Incentivization? I think so. Okay. It, it is now. Um, for more uh, drug arrests, like you mm-hmm. would get federal grant money. You would get these different things. And so, it's, I mean, it's, um, it's like commission, right? For mm-hmm. a salesperson. It's like arrest more people. Are we really, are we concerned about helping people and serving our community and lifting people out of these situations? Or is it, well, the more people we arrest, the more money that we get, and it kind of looks good. We can say, "Look, we're you know we're keeping people safe. We're doing these right. things, right?" And look,
1: we're making money for the community, right? And by by doing so,
0: right? And that's not to disparage people that do that are serving and that are protecting us and, and our police force. I mean, but there's again, this isn't this isn't as much about individuals as it is about systems that are in place, mm-hmm. um, even with the prosecution of things. I, I don't think that you know. Uh, Certainly there is a case where individual, like prosecutors or judges may, may be racist, but I don't think the reason that um, African Americans are, are more likely to be jailed for drugs is because uh, the prosecutors are overtly racist. I think there's just something that's been ingrained in us yeah, I think there's for an implicit bias. There's an implicit bias that mm-hmm. I may think I'm being non-biased, but it's there.
1: Right, um, I mean, they've done studies where you're know, playing video games, um, people are more likely to shoot the African-American and assume that he's got the gun the than one, right? the white people. Right. Um, there's just this implicit bias that is on all of us, and we have to recognize it and call it out if we're to overcome it and to to not let those things drive us and drive society forward.
0: I was in the, the podcast that referenced at the beginning of that Holy Post episode. It said something about that idea, like, what is is just programmed into us. You know, we think of like, oh no, like drug dealers and people selling drugs. And we think of you know, big scary black men driving in from these cities to sell drugs to poor little unsuspecting white kids. But the research shows, no, white people buy drugs off of other white people. Mm-hmm. And black people buy drugs off of other black people. Right. But we just assume, like, I'm gonna jump and make this assumption because I've been trained to think that way.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And going back to um, some statistics about imprisonment uh, among whites versus blacks, um, one in 17 white men face a, life, uh, a lifetime likelihood of imprisonment versus one in three black men. That's, that's a huge uh, disparity right there. One in 17 white men versus one in three African-American men. Um, same with white women versus black women. One in 111 white women have a likelihood of lifetime imprisonment versus one in 18 African-American women. So there's just incredible statistics that show um, that systemic racism is alive and well in our country. And it's our job to to do something about that. You know, we we thought that slavery ended, you know, with the Emancipation Proclamation, but it is very much still alive and well in our country. It's just taken a different form, the form of mass incarceration. Um, The the prison system farms out their inmates to companies. Uh, I got again another quote inmates are paid a pittance for example the California Prison Industry Authority pays 7,000 inmates who participate in this program anywhere from 35 to 95 cents per hour before deductions a lucky inmate who made 50 cents an hour working 8 hours a day would make $960 a year before deductions of penalties and court imposed fees why exploit labor abroad when you can do it at home you know if that was happening in another country, and we were buying goods from that country. We would be outraged, and we would, there would be protests. But it's happening in the United States, and because you know they're prisoners, they're they're paying you know they're they're due to society. We're somehow okay with it, right. and as followers of Jesus, we have to be outraged about that because again, it's it's a form of slavery. Yeah. Um, it's just taken a different form. You know, we read an article last time that that talked about how lynchings still take place. Uh, They're just taking a different form uh, in the form of police brutality and other injustices against people of color. And again, slavery is still alive and well in systemic racism that is an everyday reality for, for many Americans.
0: Right. I think that that, that's crazy that what you just talked about, like inmates, you know, being kind of sent out to go and work and they'll make 50 cents an hour. And, you know, I can hear people like making the argument and, and, already they're like, well, they're inmates. Yeah. We, they can go and do that mm-hmm. 50 cents an hour. It's fine. They've got to, they might as well have them do some work. And I think it would be one thing if nobody was profiting from it. Right. If it's like, okay, you know, as part of your rehabilitation, you're going to go work, but no one's making a profit, mm-hmm. but people are. Mm-hmm. And like to say, Hey, we're going to send you out to do this work and you're going to do whatever the job is. Whoever that, you know, quote employer is, is still making Money at the expense of someone else else's labor, right? And so that's that's where it's like, whoa! It,
1: it's it's exploitation, um, yeah. and it's it's degrading to a human being that is made in the image of God. Um,
0: like sending a prisoner out to do like basically volunteer work, great, right. but sending someone out to do a job that you're profiting from, you're profiting by, by the, the labor and the work of someone else. I don't care if they're in prison or not, that's just wrong.
1: Right. And we don't have a lot, whole lot of time to really get into it, but there's uh, plenty of data and research that shows that, um, privatized prisons will keep people, um, basically in longer, uh, for minor infractions. To continue to profit off them because it's beneficial for them. It's beneficial for states to um, to keep people locked up because again they're making money off cheap labor.
0: Yeah. Well,
1: so, Phil, where do we go from here? I was going to say we're, you have any other, we're any starting other, to talk. Any um, other stats or information to add? No, I don't. We've got lots of information that we've thrown at you. Yeah. Um, so sit back, digest it, listen to this podcast again, um, and but,
0: please, please, please check out the other resources too. Cause right.
1: Um. So all this, you know, there's riots going on in our country. There's
0: everything seems to be a mess right now. Yeah. Um, So I guess where do we go from here? What do we do? You know, one of the goals uh, of the podcast of of this, this particular episode, why we talked about everything was to try to eliminate some of the willful ignorance. Um, You know, being ignorant is just ignorance is just you you don't know something, right? Mm -hmm. It's not actually a bad thing. Uh, but on a lot of the issues of racial inequality and systemic racism many of us are guilt guilty of willful ignorance like we could choose to know this if we if we really wanted to we could look up the information it's it's out there but a lot of times it's like we don't know these things not because we can't but because we don't and so you know part of the goal here and, and part of the continuing goal would be here's one of the things that that we need to do, especially again, if you're a follower of Jesus, um, is to just make a commitment to say, look, I'm not going to be willfully ignorant on these issues. I'm not going to, to claim, well, I just didn't know. I just didn't have the information. I'm not going to sit back and, and watch my brothers and sisters suffer, um, and not, be properly informed about it so so one of the things one of the places that we need to go is just to continue this idea of i'm going to educate myself um, i'm going to learn i'm going to do what i can to um, to continue to to grow and to listen to voices that are different and to hear opinions that differ than mine and and listen to differing political opinions and all that, and listen to the voices of people whose life experience is different than mine. Mm -hmm. Um, It it is so arrogant to speak into what a person or a group of people should do when you've never experienced the life that they've experienced. Um, And so one of the biggest things that we can do, again, as people of, of God, as the church, is to start from a place where say, I'm going to be properly armed with the information I'm going to get to know some people that are different than me, um, but as it relates to these systemic issues, there are some things that we can do, that we should do, mm-hmm. that we must do, um, and so let's let's just spend a few times talking about that. So one, we got getting educated, right? Keep continue learning, continue um, to to grow in that area. One of the things that we're seeing right now um, is there's a lot of protesting, there's a lot of rioting going on. Uh, I think as Christians, as followers of Jesus, protesting is a good thing. Mm -hmm. I think uh, if you're able to, that you should go and you should protest. Um, With a caveat being, I do think that it should be a peaceful protest. Mm -hmm. I think it should be nonviolent protest. Um, That is absolutely the way of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, It's this idea of submissive subversion. Like, you know there's there's the passage of the suffering servant from Isaiah that says you know like a lamb going to the slaughter he was silent mm-hmm. right like it's this picture of of the most wicked evil done to the 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 son of god and he was just Quiet. He was silent in every
1: way. He was the victim, but yet he maintained control of his destiny.
0: And it was through the the submission and the nonviolence by Jesus, by him being overcome by the evil and the oppression of the world, was how he ended up overcoming the sin and evil of the world. Yep. Um, and, and so, I mean, I, I would hope you'd hear our heart in that. Go out and protest, but it should be done in a peaceful way. Mm-hmm. Um, it should be done in a nonviolent way. Uh, Nothing comes from bringing about more hatred and more violence. Just being lobbed in the other direction,
1: right? You're you're not making any difference if you're trying to use. um, You know, we talk about Babylon around here uh, because Babylon is a picture of oppressive human systems. Talking about uh, Babylon and the Bible, but it it doesn't overthrow Babylon to use the ways of Babylon. Uh, The way we overthrow Babylon is submissive subversion, this peaceful resistance. Um, so we don't use violence.
0: I think that's one of the things that oftentimes is missed um, from Dr. King is that the the reason that Martin Luther King was, was so, I mean, powerful in what he did and the protests so effective and, and he was all about, you know, nonviolent, peaceful protesting. He was so anchored in theology and faith and, and uh, kind of the idea of exile and suffering in the ways of Jesus. Like that, That's what came out and what motivated that. Um, And so I think we got to be really careful if we lose that, Mm -hmm. that again, if if we turn to violence, if we turn to aggression, we may be, maybe we address, maybe we solve one area of injustice for one group of people, but we create all kinds of injustice and evil and suffering Mm -hmm. for others. Um, And so like having something to anchor it to like, why do I think injustice is wrong? It's because I believe people are made in the image of God. It's someone that Christ died for to redeem. And so I want to do it in the way of Jesus. And just, you know, one of the quotes from um, Dr. King is, you know, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. Um, Like that is so anchored in Mm -hmm. the story of scripture, of understanding that, the way that you overcome the ways of the world and the evil and the oppression and the hatred is not being like the world. Um, it's not unleashing more of that. Um, but doing, uh, really the opposite of that, that countercultural kind of living. So yes, go out and protest, mm-hmm. um, do those things, but do it in a way, again, if you're a Christian that is representative of Christ, of right. who he is. Um,
1: Next, I would encourage you to write your representatives, state, local, federal, um, and encourage them to uh, pass policies that bring about real reform. Yeah. Um, and along with that, vote. Use your uh, your right to vote. And, <clears throat> and vote in people that are going to support policies that, that bring about real change instead of people that are just concerned about keeping their office and making certain people happy. Um, I think that time, that time's over. I mean, we're, we're beyond that at this point.
0: Yeah. And, you know, and along with that kind of getting back to the idea of protests and the riots and the different things. And, um, I was watching a Facebook live video by a local, um, community leaders, a police officer, um, nearby here and he works with, I mean, he's a black man he's a cop and uh, he works with youth and a lot of different people. Some of you may already know who I'm talking about, but I don't really want to drop names. So, uh, but he had just said this idea. He said like, if you're, if you're going out in protesting, but you're not willing to go and vote, go home. Uh, and there's just that idea. Like there is a sense in which um, people sometimes don't have a voice, but that's a voice that we have that we often don't use. Mm-hmm. That's right. Like, don't go out and riot. Don't go out and protest if you're not willing to, to vote, if you're not willing to be involved in your local community and say, I'm willing to put, um, to put the work in to make the change. Um, you know, just in general, I, you look at the crowds of people who are out rioting and protesting right now. They're mostly younger people. And mm-hmm. they're, I mean, I'd say under the age of 30, most of them. I don't really know, but you look at the crowds, it's mostly younger people. Um, and they're angry, and they should be right? It, it, it's good to be angry angry it's a righteous anger it's it's angry at things that God is angry about mm-hmm. uh, if, you, if you don't think that God is is ticked and, and just heartbroken over the injustices that, that we see in our world over um, over the murder of George Floyd like God is heartbroken about he's angry about that so it's good to be angry and, and, and again a lot of younger people out protesting but what statistics also show us is that age group, is also the least likely to be registered to vote, is also the least likely to actually go to the polls and make their voices heard. Right. And
1: actually do something that makes a true difference.
0: Yeah, that says, look, I'm, I'm not just, I'm not gonna just make noise, I'm not just gonna forget about this in a month, but like, I'm gonna commit to this. Right. I guess that's a question or a challenge I would have. If you If you're protesting, awesome, do it, that's great. But are you willing to still be a voice for things when it costs you something? Mm-hmm. Um, and and to stick in it for the long haul and say, you know what, this may not just be something that I post about or talk about for a week or two. This might be something that I fight for for my entire life. Right. Um, But yeah.
1: All right. So thanks for joining us today. Um, And don't hear us saying that means that you have to to get out and vote for a political candidate. We're never going to tell you who to vote for. We're never going to tell you what party to vote for. That's right, because you you
0: can't vote for Jesus. Because you could write it in, but it won't count. (laughs) Jesus
1: didn't come to take sides. Jesus came to take over over and to abolish the sides that we have. So, vote with that in mind.
0: Yeah. So stay educated, stay informed, have your perspectives challenged, protest, make your voice heard, vote, and above all things, if you're a Christian. Submit yourself to the ways of Jesus mm-hmm. and the way that he sees the world. That's right. Okay, everybody. It's been a long one. There's a lot more that could be said, Yep. but we got to go.
1: Have a great week.